everybody, and welcome to the Aggieville Alleycast podcast, where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here in Liberty to the Kansas State Sporting News in Solo. I'm Ace Edwards, right alongside Connor Bossesworth, and ladies and gentlemen, we have finally made it to football season. Are you excited, Connor? I am very excited. Uh, I don't sound very excited because I'm very tired right now, <laughs> just getting used to starting on classes again, uh, but I am very excited. On the inside, sometimes it's very difficult for me to focus because I can't stop thinking about. Uh, they can't stop uh, thinking about them cats. Exactly, I, I keep thinking about them cats. <laughs> I'm much of the same, but we're here to talk about and preview the first game of the season that is up against the Southeast Missouri State Redhawks, better known as SEMO. And if you're unfamiliar with our little formula, we do. If in case this is your first year listening, firstly, welcome to the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Glad to have you. But we always go through the previous year's stats and then talk about what they've lost, what they return, and then we go into more in-depth film breakdowns of what to expect from them as a team. So we'll just go ahead and start. I'll take the left side of the page this time. Just starting off with their offensive numbers and record. Last year, SEMO was a 9-3 team in 5-0 in the Ohio Valley Conference. They ran for 2,502 yards at a cliff of 6.3 per attempt and 28 rushing touchdowns, 2,659 passing yards, 7.4 per attempt with a 61% completion percentage, a 19-6 touchdown-to-interception ratio, 41.3% third-down conversion rate, a touchdown rate in the red zone of 63% and a scoring rate of 85%, only 10 sacks allowed, averaging 35.64 points per game and 392 total points for. So what you'll notice there is that their rushing numbers and passing numbers are extremely close to each other. And that sort of speaks to their offensive philosophy, which we'll get into a little bit later into this episode but, Connor, you have the defensive stats. Yep, so defensively, they allowed 22.18 points per game. That's a total of 244 over those 12 games that they played. Uh, they allowed 2,696 pass yards and 20 passing touchdowns. And then they allowed 1,330 rush yards uh, with nine rushing touchdowns against them. Uh, the red zone, they allowed touchdowns only 53% of the time. Teams got into the red zone. And then... Uh, score 75% of the time the other teams got into the red zone. They had 11 interceptions, 3 fumbles, and then 25 sacks as a defense. So all in all, really respectable numbers there. The passing yardage uh, is a little high, um, but the rushing yards, especially the rushing touchdowns, is uh, pretty respectable there. Really good. Yeah, and especially the red zone numbers. are They're really a stingy defense when it comes to being in the red zone. I think a lot of that has to do with sort of their offense philosophy and just their general game philosophy, which is kind of a little bit of a throwback with a little bit of new elements implemented. But I'll talk about the notable returners here. The Arguably the most important person they have returning is their running back, Gino Hess, who was, in pre, he was both an FCS All-American last year and a preseason FCS All-American this year. We'll talk about him in a little bit. Uh, TLDR, he's very good. Uh, Paxton De Laurent, the starting quarterback from last year, returns. Lawrence Johnson, who is their safety, who is second on the team in tackles, returns as well. Ryan Flournoy, their, I'm not sure if that's how that's pronounced, uh, was a wide receiver. He was their leader in receiving yards last year. They also return a FCS All-American lineman in Zach Geig, as well as Bryce Norman or Bryce Norma. I don't know which one it is. I may have made an error. I'm about 90% sure it's Norman. Okay. Well, we'll figure it out. And he's their linebacker. He was also another, I believe he was a highly touted preseason FCS guy as well. So, you know, for an FCS team, they are bringing back quite a bit. But they're also losing a few important pieces as well. Yeah. Uh, Maybe the biggest loss that they had, or at least maybe the most relevant loss that they had (laughs) to us, is uh, Tyler Neelam, a quarterback, a cornerback, uh, that transferred to K-State. Uh, so the, I guess there's a shot that we'll see Neelam uh, suit up and get on the field against the uh, team that he used to be a part of. Um, but I guess we'll see. Uh, Philip Wilder, or Wilder, a uh, tackle transferred to Cincinnati. Uh, Johnny King was their leader in receptions at receiver. He is gone. And then they also lost offensive lineman Terry Cook. 
so a few key losses there. Um, a few, especially on the offensive line, they lost a, a couple of really important pieces. Um, not returning a ton there, but uh, still, uh, the returners maybe outweigh the losses in some ways. I, I would almost certainly say that they do. So now, because we don't have to talk about their current schedule, you know, the, the this year's schedule like we normally do, we can kind of just move directly into the film study here. And just from the outset, there's not a whole, whole lot to say about SEMO. Because, like, you could go in-depth with just about every part of their game, but you would ultimately end up at the conclusion of they are a solid to good FCS team. That's the conclusion you would draw. <laughs> yeah, I I think you're absolutely right. And that's not because, you know, we don't have a ton to say, and it's not because they aren't a good team. They are a very good FCS team. But it is that at most every position, they should be athletically uh, overmatched uh, by K-State. Uh, last year, they, of course, they went 9-3, and three. But they only um, had one game against an FBS team, and that was at Iowa State. They got blown out by an Iowa State team that did not have a good season. So yeah, and they also had an awful offense. Yeah, uh, that, a forty-two ten victory. An Iowa State offense putting up forty-two points on anyone should <laughs> raise some red flags. <laughs> so uh, um, there's definitely some some issues there with uh, Southeast Missouri. This is a a team that K-State should be able to outmatch uh, both on the X's and O's and uh, uh, with uh, Jimmy's and Joe's. But there, there's still some points that are, are worth making about them. Yeah. So the first one, just talking offensively, talking about their, their personnel, they're generally just a spread team, like a modern conception of a spread team. But they also have the caveat of they also really enjoy the spread running game. Sometimes from pistol, especially towards the back end of the year, they almost exclusively ran out of pistol because it offered them a lot of versatility while still allowing them to keep their their spread game in a, in order. But they're a very much just a modern college offense. You know, they're a spread team that implements a lot of RPOs, specifically slants, which you know the three three five specifically <laughs> exists to coincide and just get rid of um they're also a they're a team that enjoys motion i would say just about as much as any other offense especially in the fcs ranks which means you know they're going to use it on probably a third to a little under half of their plays but their favorite flavor of it seems to be motion out of the backfield so motioning like a running back out Sometimes it's Geno has, sometimes it's the other running back, um, which the qualification of the other running back kind of tells you. Yeah, that tells you a lot about the quality of uh, of Geno Hess, that uh, there's not really a notable second. second guy. Yeah. But, Connor, you can talk a little bit about the, the play calling before we start getting into the individual players here. Yeah, they're, they are first and foremost a running team, which you can tell from their uh, raw stats as well. Just generally, whenever you see rushing yards be that close to passing yards, that means that they're a running team. Uh, and they're very risk-averse as an offense. RPO offenses inherently are a lot of times. Uh, they're running very high-percentage routes, and if they can, they're keeping the ball on the ground, which, again, that is something that they really want to do. So... They uh, do a little bit of everything um, schematically. From what we saw, they do like mesh, uh, and which again, they're risk averse. Mesh is a really nice way to do that. Yeah. Uh, but they run a lot of pistol as well. Uh, they get some outside zone in. They get some power. Uh, some various other things. There's there's not a ton uh, that's super out of the ordinary. Honestly, a lot of it is stuff that we'll see come conference play. So in in some ways, it's nice uh, to get a, a head start on an RPO um, offense. Just see it earlier, which again, that's something we're practicing against a lot anyways, being a 3-3-5 and that being a part of pretty much any college offense at this point in time. Uh, but that, that that's to summarize that, they really want to run the ball and they're an RPO team. 
uh, at least from what we've seen. Yeah. I think a, another part of the play calling is not only mesh, but a weirdly during the beginning part of the season that we watched from last year, which granted we were only able to watch two or three games, uh, towards the beginning of last year, they wanted to take their shots downfield. And a lot of every time they did take a shot downfield, it was just, you know, one-on-one situations or sometimes has we witnessed four-on-one situations that somehow weren't picked. But... That, that sort of goes into the the receivers a little bit, but we'll touch on them in a, in a little bit. Uh, we'll start off by talking about their quarterback, Paxton De Laurent. De Laurent, I think I said earlier. Mm-hmm. He is one of the FCS quarterbacks I've ever seen in my life. Um, he, the biggest notable thing about him is he's not... He's not insanely athletic he's not nick baker i still have nightmares about nick baker (laughs) um the siu quarterback but he's not a statue he's not carson strong i would describe his mobility as slightly below average his arm strength is good for an fcs quarterback which translates to solid if you were an fbs quarterback the the knock on him is first off he hates pressure with every fiber of his being, if he even slightly believes that he's being pressured, which I think is also why they want to operate a lot of quick game RPO stuff or um, just quick decisions. Uh, if he gets a whiff of being pressured, he, uh, uh-uh, no, he refuses. He simply declines to be a good quarterback when that happens. Um, his accuracy, fine. Arm strength, fine. Processing, below average. He's a fine FCS quarterback, but you know we've we've been burnt by FCS quarterbacks before, and I honestly think that the Arkansas State quarterback we faced in 2020, granted whether or not that season counts, is probably worse than this guy than Paxton. But like, we've come so far. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I I like that you you said that they do have a lot of quick reads. Uh, in their offense. And I think that, like you said, it is on purpose because they know he's not a great processor because when he has the time to think about it or when his first read isn't there, he doesn't have the elite athleticism to just automatically escape. So what ends up happening is he will kind of get pressured into making a poor choice just to get the ball out of his hands. Like we saw him throw at least one time to quadruple coverage uh, <laughs> on a route that never had a shot. And Which, granted, it was a bad play call. but like <laughs> It was a really bad play call, but it was a slow-developing call, which, uh, um, again, he, he needs to make his decisions quickly. Uh, he, he needs to trust that the throw will be there when it's supposed to be, and if it's not... Uh, that spells trouble. Yeah. But you can talk about Geno Hess and just sort of everything you saw with him, but you can also just do the TLDR if you want to. <laughs> uh, well, Geno Hess is a really good running back. Um, he would be a quality Big 12 running back, probably in the top half of the conference in terms of talent. Um, I like him a lot. He rushed for just under 1,700 yards last year and 21 touchdowns averaged 7.2 yards per carry which is nuts <laughs> especially on 236 carries yeah uh he isn't used a ton out of the backfield only had nine catches on the year but he did have two touchdowns the sample size isn't huge there so it's tough to say um but he he's really talented uh he can push a pile he's powerful uh he's um not a very tall running back he's only five foot eight but he is 222 pounds bro's compact yeah so he he is kind of like a bowling ball in in that sense but he is definitely going to be the most difficult person to contain on the offense i don't think it's close it's not uh because well i don't know if you want to talk about the receivers but uh i'll talk about their linemen instead because i feel Mm -hmm. like the linemen notes are the most sparse yeah they're Again, it's it, this is sort of a difficult one because the linemen, you, you don't get a lot in terms of level of competition. You do get their sack numbers. They only allowed 10 sacks last year. You know, that looks really good. Then you remember that KU's offensive line last year only gave up like 
12 sacks. So a lot of it can be covered up with scheme. Um, but that being said, I do think that their their offensive line unit is a collection of really good and clever run blockers who have basically been told your job is to know your running blocking assignments. That's going to be 95% of our offense. Everything else that you do in terms of pass protection, you can kind of get away with because they're going to do a lot of play action, going to do a lot of RPOs where you're basically neutralizing the offensive line. But, you know, Zach Geig is the lone exception. Zach Geig, honestly, may be, he may turn himself into an NFL guy. He may be one of the next... There are two people on this team that I think are genuinely locks to be NFL guys, and that's Geno Hess and Zach Geig. You could make an argument for Lawrence Johnson on the defensive side of the ball, but I think that Geig and Hess are their two best players. I don't think it's particularly close. But everything else about the offensive line does not exceed average except for like their right guard's ability on like long trap which I saw them run exactly once saw him get a really good rep and then it was oh cool maybe he's good at that I don't know he could <laughs> still be but yeah that that's sort of the notes on on the linemen I know you you're you're not going to say you're itching to talk about the receivers but yeah. Well, last night on the linemen, they are definitely one of the FCS lines of ever. Yeah. I mean, they're they're okay, but they're mostly undersized, mostly slower. Uh it's not like a North Dakota State offensive line where they have actual NFL guys, like true guys that you look at and say NFL because you don't look at Zach Geek and think NFL because he's not big. He's like six one, two eighty, two ninety. But he probably does have that talent. Uh, but getting to the receivers, um, again, they do lose their receptions leader from last year. They lost uh, Johnny King, and uh, they do still return uh, Ryan Flournoy, who was uh, the receiving yards leader. But the receivers, in a word, are slow. They, they're very slow. They're very slow. Uh, to the point where it almost looks like they're taking every rep off. But it kind of is typical to tell. Uh, at least from what we saw from from them, they are not fast at all. They are not in a hurry to get anywhere. Um, but they are big. And the one situation where they seem to find an advantage a lot of the time is contested catch situations. And a lot of that is because they, if you look at their roster, they have a uh, desire to get big receivers. Yeah. They want tall receivers, they want receivers with long arms, they want people that are going to not beat coverage with speed, but are just going to ignore coverage instead. <laughs> and yeah, they will instead opt to just catch the ball through coverage. But there was one rep last uh, last season when we were watching the, FC, the uh, Iowa State game where the corner was in trail and he almost overran the route because he was jogging. He was jogging with the receiver. And it was the primary read receiver on the play. <laughs> yeah, their receivers, not fast, not super elusive from what we have seen. Uh, but again, their contested catch threats, which could potentially be an issue, uh, depending on our pass rush and depending on uh, what situations we have Jacob Parrish in. Yeah. Uh, but it, it remains to be seen. It's... Uh, uh, an interesting receiver core, but they're not, in theory, a major threat. No. I will say that they do have consistent enough hands, which you almost have to on RPO, like in RPO-based offenses. So, like, if you had to pick one thing they were good at, it'd be hands, just generally. Everything else is pretty lacking. Yeah. But... That's, like we said, there's not a lot that we can say about the offense, so we can move on to the defense where there's arguably even less to say. <laughs> um, so just speaking defensively, they enjoy a lot of their hybrid base fronts, which just about every college team enjoys nowadays. Sometimes it's a four-man front with a walked-up linebacker being the fourth man. Other times it's a five-man a wide front, or some people des- describe it cub. Because it's like a bear, but you're missing a safety and one of the. Never mind, you're <laughs> missing the safety in one of the gaps. Um, 
but they deploy mostly those hybrid fronts. So functionally, they're like a four-two-five or a five-one, five-one-five uh, defense. So again, pretty standard for for college, and uh, yeah, that a lot of the standardness of their defense. We're. I'm just gonna rip the band-aid off now. The only thing that their defense is truly good at is in the red zone. I don't know what it is about them in the red zone, but they suddenly start playing together really well. And it's not even that they're running a bend don't break defense because that's not what they run. They run too much press and cover three for that. Um, it's just they literally just start playing better <laughs> in the red zone. <laughs> Yeah, they, they run a lot of off coverage, uh, a lot of deep coverage. I mean, it, it is pretty close to bend, don't break, because uh, they, again, they give up a lot uh, in between uh, or anything before the red zone, um, and their defense can compact a little bit better and uh, help lock down more areas of the field. But, yeah, they're... They weren't really stopping Iowa State with much effectiveness. Hunter Deckers looked quality against this but defense. But you, you can't you can't have that. You can't have that. Yeah. So it, it they still have individually pretty good players uh, on this defense, uh, but it's still lackluster in a lot of ways. That's how I describe it politely. Okay, I don't want. I don't mean to keep dumping on them because. They're not. There's nothing about them that is bad. It's just that there's nothing about them that's particularly good. Like watching their defense, you will find yourself whelmed. You'll not be overwhelmed. You'll not be underwhelmed. You will simply be whelmed. Yeah, they're um. They're not going to just let everybody through, but it's going to be tough for them to stop. Uh, K-State, especially with um, K-State seemingly trying to have this goal of 50 points per game on offense, I wish them luck I, with the new clock rules. That'd be cool. I, I would absolutely take it. The new clock rules will make it difficult with how much the clock will be running, but I would absolutely allow it. I would as well. Do you want you want me to talk about their coverages, and then you can kind of talk about their players with occasionally me chiming in, or... You go ahead. Okay. So in terms of coverage, they run a lot of, of cover three, a lot of single high coverages, a lot of man coverages. If they're playing off coverage, it's probably cover three. Um, they do run... They, there is a slight variation to it sometimes, depending on the team. They, uh, they prefer to play that cover three single high look. Um, they ran that a little bit more against uh, Montana, which is one of the games we watched. They ran a little bit more too high against Iowa State, largely because I think they knew that they had a Xavier Hutchinson and a Jalen Knoll on the team, who, you know, Xavier Hutchinson's a legit receiver. Jalen Knoll's just fast. <laughs> so, if I had to guess what they were going to play against K-State, I'd guess that they sort of base in a, a too high shell, probably a lot of cover four uh, or quarters, depending on how you prefer to say it. If you play Madden, you say cover four. If you don't, you play quarters. Um, but if I had to guess, they'll probably come out a lot of zone coverages. Um, so, you know, expect Colin Klein to either run a lot of floods, a lot of dagger, or just you know, say, hey, four verts, every single vertical route becomes a one-on-one at some point in its development. That's literally what the Eagles did last year, and it seemed to work out pretty well for them. But, yeah, that's sort of their coverage. They're they're not particularly clever with how they do stunts. They just blitz a lot. Like, they'll, they'll send, like, a linebacker one play, and then they'll send a slot blitz the other play. So, like, they enjoy blitzing and just sending pressure from different angles, and that's why they had 25 sacks. It's uh, it's not based off of, like, one defensive lineman going crazy, because, uh, well, Connor, you got that. <laughs> yeah, their defensive line is not super impactful in most situations. Um, most of the time, they can at best hope to only get pushed back a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't get a ton of push on pass rush, 
Um, that doesn't mean they're all bad. Um, they do have one quality I can think of off the top of my head where um, on a play where a defensive lineman is left unblocked uh, because of a read of some sort, if they stay home, they generally are pretty good at tracking down uh, the handoff very quickly, which is a really strange thing to be really good at. Yeah. And, and, I mean, that's what I was good at. Yeah. Uh, well, congratulations. You could have been on CMO. Uh No, I couldn't have. I'm 5'9". <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, on defensive line, their pass rush isn't fantastic. Um, their run defense isn't anything special whatsoever. They, they get in your way, but that's about all they do in run defense. Yeah, they're they're not making many splash plays, not many super impactful plays. They pretty much they go out and do their job, and so, sometimes do their job at least. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're they're okay. They're they're not a fantastic unit, um, but probably not the worst defensive line. Uh, I guess a lot of it probably comes down to they're not always playing with the highest of motors. Um, it seems like, uh, but if they maybe come out a bit more motivated to take on a uh, ranked team, then. I guess we could kind of get caught flat-footed in, in that regard, but I'm not going into this game expecting uh, dominance from their uh, defensive line. In fact, far from it. I, uh, I think that's a completely fair assessment. <laughs> um, in terms of their linebackers, the they're fine. They're good tacklers. What they lack is speed. Like, they're the anti-Tulane of last year, where I thought the only thing that the linebackers were good at were that they were really fast and really athletic, and they just played with their hair on fire. Like, they basically just had two missiles playing linebacker. I'll stand by that one. I I, I will hold a lot of L's about the Tulane takes. I'm not changing that one. Uh, <laughs> but the linebackers for SEMO, probably because they're FCS linebackers, they just don't have that sideline-to-sideline speed that you really like. So I think that there's a pretty good chance that Ben Sinnott could toast them up the middle, especially if they leave, like if there's a match assignment or he's just straight up manned up. Uh, Sinnott could be a problem <laughs> this game. I don't think they have a single person who can defend Sinnott. Um, they used to in Tyler Neelum, but I'm not sure even Neelum could... Uh... It's Nalone. <laughs> I'm not even sure Nalone could stick with him. That, that doesn't matter now he's not on the team. Um, and boots especially really mess up the linebackers. Like if they're playing in that five man surface, like that cub front, they're not going to have a good time if you, uh, if you just boot out because they've, they just don't have that sideline to sideline speed. They're not going to be great in coverage. So, you know, say you have Treshawn Ward hypothetically leaking out of the, well, even DJ, if you have one of the running backs, leaking out as like a check down option, they're not going to get there for about five or six yards. So theoretically, if Will Howard, you know, decided that he wanted to have a, a nice, easy Tom Brady game and check down 45 times a game instead of throwing downfield like an actual man. <laughs> yep, yep, went there. Don't care. Um, you could do that. You'd have success with it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I do agree with you on Ben Sennett as well. Um, but I do think that also opens up opportunities for other tight ends. I, I think running twin tight end could uh, really make things difficult uh, for their linebackers. And I imagine we see a lot of twin tight end this year, whether it be Will Swanson or Garrett Oakley. Uh, either of those guys, I think, would be really effective here. Garrett Oakley with his uh, foot speed. And then Swanson's got really long arms. Uh, so that would be helpful there. But... I'm uh, I'm pretty optimistic about our uh, playmakers' ability to get past their linebackers. Uh, I, I'm not super worried about that. But getting to their uh, safeties, I'm very methodical when they uh, they come downhill. Um, but uh, they don't worry themselves into awful situations uh, because of this approach. Um, kind of like Josh Hayes, uh, where he kind of had that really great trait, being able to come downhill and uh, make run stops uh, pretty often. Um, but they're uh, they're all pretty solid. Again, they run a lot of prevent defense, a lot of quarters. So their their safeties aren't always, you know, in the perfect position uh, to really make highlight plays in pass uh, in pass coverage. But um, and then also because of that, they don't get a ton of TFLs because they're starting a little further back. But they come down and make a lot of solid run stops. 
I don't have a ton to say about the safeties. Uh, we have nothing to say about the corners. They exist. They're on the team. And like we said earlier, if if this all seems sparse, it's because it is. SEMO is an alright FCS team, and a lot of that just comes off as, you know, pretty unremarkable at times. They don't do anything horrible, but they don't do anything, you know, amazing either. They are a team that shows up, is generally disciplined, uh, will play to their assignments, and sometimes just you can abuse those assignments to take advantage of the fact that they don't have those, you know, FBS athletes. Like, they don't have those linebackers who can run in the four fives the four sixes and they don't have those safeties who have that those insane instincts even if they you know even if they're a bit slow coming downhill that prevents them from making mistakes so it's just a bunch of little stuff that adds up to them because they're a generally well coached team they're going to be a solid team and a team that if you did completely ignore them like you basically like say k-state just started prepping for troy immediately, SEMO could come in and burn them. I don't think they'd lose, but I think they could serve as a really big wake-up call if like they are overlooked. Because they're not a bad team. They're not Tennessee Tech. <laughs> yeah, this, this is a conscious football team that uh, will try when it matters. And they, again, like you said, they're, they don't really have weak links. Even if they aren't, you know, this incredible team that has you know like a ton of players that are actually super impressive i mean they have uh hess uh, running back who is going to be pretty impressive and will almost certainly get um at least a bit of time in the nfl uh but they're 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 still a a good team uh they're still a team that should not be taken lightly um being preseason ranked and uh, I think being preseason pick for their conference title. Yeah, they're picked as favorites for the Ohio Valley. Yeah, so this is still a good squad. It's not a North Dakota State or a South Dakota State or a Sam Houston State, which I think they're FBS now. Yeah, right? Sam Houston State's FBS now. They're in uh, CUSA. Mm-hmm. Good for them. But this is not a uh, team that K State should lose to. Uh, losing to SEMO would be disastrous, I think. Yeah. I- <laughs> Uh, talk about killing all momentum for a season in like thirty seconds. <laughs> it would be all. It'd be classic K State though to lose an FCS game and then go unbeaten in conference play. <laughs> I would rather we just did the second part. <laughs> you know what? I I agree with you. I, I do agree. <laughs> <laughs> but now we can talk about the specific K State stories to watch going into this game, and to me. The most important one is how does the new look secondary, you know, look for K-State? Especially given that it's basically all brand new starters with the exception of Kobe Savage and I guess half if you want to count VJ. Yeah. Um, Especially corner, that's where we're going to be seeing the biggest shift. Yeah. Uh, Will Lee, brand new. Jacob Parrish we saw down the stretch um, a lot more. Beyond that, yeah, VJ Payne, he did start last year, but it was only for about half the season, or even less, maybe. And uh, then, of course, the uh, uh, other, star- other starter, uh, Marquise uh, Seigel, uh, he uh, is new as well, though the staff is very high on him. Mm-hmm. I'm not worried too—I'm not really too worried about it, honestly. Um, I think that they're going to look really solid in this first game. Uh, Kobe, I think, is going to come out with his hair on fire because, uh, well, he always does anyways, but I think it'll maybe even be extra since he uh, didn't get to finish out last season. There's going to be a poor receiver who's on a crossing route and is going to meet Kobe Savage, and he doesn't deserve it. Yeah, somebody is going to get caught over the middle by Kobe, or someone in the flat is going to get caught. It It's going to be a really bad day for someone that doesn't deserve it, but um, I'm expecting big things from VJ Payne. Uh, just from a development perspective, I'm hoping to see him a lot more comfortable. Uh, I'm expecting um, Siegel to come in for North Dakota State and be borderline all-conference uh, as things stand. And then Willie and Jacob Parrish, uh, I, I, I think we can rely on them both to be competent Big 12 corners. Uh, Jacob Parrish, we've seen it. Will Lee, we've at least heard it. But we haven't seen it yet. 
I'm, I'm still pretty confident, though, in Will Lee's performance. Uh, we just have to wait and see it. Yeah. And I agree with you, I especially on Siegel. I'm really high on, on Siegel. I did a second run through of his tape, and if I could if I could redo the transfer rankings, Siegel would find his way up the list a lot. Um, but you're right. I do think the biggest questions are the corners, because I think you know, VJ is at least a somewhat known commodity. Kobe Savage was an All-Big 12 player before getting hurt, and still was after he got hurt. Uh, the only question would be Marcus, Marcus Siegel, and I don't think he's a question mark. I think he's the best transfer safety that K-State has brought in, and that's outside of Kobe Savage. Uh, I, I meant, like, non-JUCO transfer, and I don't feel like I'm getting a lot of pushback there. Maybe there will be a few uh, Russ East fans, but Mark he, Siegel's different. Um, but the, the sub-question there is, can K-State prevent the big contested catches in a game where the receivers are big. I think at some point we're going to give up one. I don't think we're going to be able to avoid that all game because that's probably going to be their best option passing-wise other than RPOs. And so at some point somebody will get mossed, I think. I don't know when it will be. Uh, But I I think we're bound to give up some sort of contested catch in this game. It doesn't even have to be a touchdown. It just needs to be at some point. Uh, but I think we're going to mostly do a good job with that. Uh, maybe even just from pressure. Yeah. I am finding myself agreeing with your statement. Well, I should say something controversial to get you to put forth a different perspective. <laughs> but I'll, I'll uh, ask the next question, uh, or next uh, story to watch going to this game. And it's, uh, can the new playmakers gel in the offense right out of the gate? From what we've heard from camp, I think so. Um, Because normally you you hear about transfers, you hear at least to some degree, or it's implied that there's a little bit of growing pain there. We haven't really heard that. And and the main two that I'm talking about are Treshawn Ward and and KJ, Keegan Johnson. I I think Keegan Johnson can do disgusting things to the secondary, and I mean like disgusting war crime level things to the secondary. Um, And I think that... I. I just think that they have a degree of chemistry that they've already sort of established. And I think Colin Klein runs an offense where even if they're not there immediately, like right on the first snap, he has the ability to call for simpler plays to sort of get everyone in rhythm. Like think of the Malik Knoll, like whenever Malik wasn't having uh, an amazing day. I don't remember who against. It was a home game. But they did the little motion screen with Ben Sinnott out to the slot, and Ben Sinnott murdered a poor corner who was trying to cover a screen pass. I think uh, that may have been Oklahoma State. It may have been. And if that's the case, Malik did get started. I, it may have done it twice. But, yeah, it it's a lot of, you know, hey, you're not involved quite yet, or you're not in rhythm yet. Let's scheme something up for you so you can easily get in rhythm. And with running backs, it's really easy. It's called holding out your arms and then having them take the <laughs> ball. Um, but yeah, I, I think I don't think that for this week, I don't think there's a concern about any gelling in the offense. Yeah, I'm with you there. I'm more interested in taking that question into a different zone, I think, where we consider um, what combinations of new playmakers are we going to be seeing how often will we see both Treshawn and DJ on the field at the same time? I'm hoping we get at least like five or six snaps uh, with a split shotgun because I think that could be a really effective formation for us this year. Because I think because they're both uh, dual threats, yeah, as a running backs where they can run the ball and catch the ball. I'm interested in seeing uh, twin tight ends with maybe Will Swanson and uh, Garrett Oakley. Um, and Ben Sinnott. I'm interested in seeing how we mix and match receivers. Now, yeah, like you said, Keegan Johnson fits in. Um, that's kind of stuff I'm interested in, but I'm not interested in, or I'm not concerned at all about them being able to gel. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that will be much of an issue. Um, but I, I, that's where I stand with them. So, here's a... With the fact that Uso was not on the depth chart, although allegedly he was practicing today, assuming Uso is not in the starting lineup and is not starting at nose tackle, how does K-State hold up at the nose tackle position? 
I think it'll end up being a unremarkable game, if not a solid game. You know, I, I think that it's not going to be anything to write home about, but I think if we could grade it out, it'd be like a C plus to B minus sort of game for the noses, where they definitely don't make any significant mistakes, maybe one or two. Uh, they're just not going out and making huge splash plays. Maybe I'm underestimating uh, Banks and Illilio, uh, especially Illilio because we have seen him before, and he's <laughs> definitely made some significant impact plays in his time. Um, I'm not worried about it for this first game. I'll be a little worried um, with every preceding game, though. <laughs> I'll get more worried with every game following, uh, depending on when Uso is able to get back. But yeah, he Kleiman did say that Uso practiced. I bet what happens is he doesn't start, but plays and has a pretty strict snap count. Yeah, it could be. Uh, but I, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I think that's the correct take. I will say that I understand people who are worried about it because it's basically two completely unknown commodities in Damon Illilio and Javon Banks. And, it, you know, if one of those goes down, you suddenly look really, really thin at nose tackle. So I understand that. Uh, I don't think it's a question of ability because I think both of them are capable nose tackles. I don't think either of them are at the point of their development where they're game breakers or they're game wreckers in the way that Uso could be just by virtue of Uso being himself. <laughs> um, but I understand why people would be concerned. I don't think it's a make-or-break thing for the game, especially given that I don't think the SEMO offensive line is amazing. Yeah, I'm right there with you. So here's the with the other depth chart-related news. Carver Willis will be starting at right tackle. Unfortunately, Christian Duffy will be hurt. So his start streak will end, and I believe Philip Brooks may take the lead for most consecutive starts uh, active on the team. But how does Carver Willis hold up at right tackle since not starting at the position since 2020? Yeah, he hasn't started or played significant snaps, I think, since the 2020 season. I think you're right. Um, so I think I'm a little worried. I'm not too worried because I do think we have great depth um, across the offensive line. I'm just curious to see if assumingly, assuming that he's been having really great uh, practice reps uh, that we can carry that over into the game uh, that he doesn't uh, shy away from the uh, lights. Uh, I think that he will ultimately end up being pretty good. I'm Looking forward to seeing how we rotate on the offensive line as well. Uh, it's been mentioned a few times that Cooper Beebe um, could kick out to right tackle at least a few times, and then we may see um, some shuffling along the offensive line uh, at other positions. So I guess if we're going to have a game to experiment, it may as well be this one. Um, but I'm, I'm imagining that at the end of the day, he will probably play fine. Uh, I, I, I think that the best case scenario is probably a performance that we don't notice because if that happens, then he's filled in exactly as we would have wanted Christian Duffy to play in the first place. Well, maybe he doesn't get coffee housed. That would actually, maybe, maybe, maybe he does. Cause as long as it doesn't result in anything, it'd be funny. Yeah, that would, that would be fine. <laughs> we still think we still talk about that. Club. Um, <laughs> so the final question is, and I'll sort of rephrase it here. How many people does K-State even opt to play in this game? I think the better question is how deep do they get in their depth chart? Like two-line, three-line? I think we get to at least the two-line plus a bit. It's like, I guess, a two-and-a-half line where we start to see some three-line. It really depends, I think, on how quickly we get to a uh, blowout level if we do. Uh, I I think that we can play a lot in this game. Kleiman has said he wants to play a true freshman and redshirt freshman and young guys when they need to. He said he's not really super worried about redshirts anymore, uh, just especially with you know guys move around a lot, so you don't know how long you're going to have someone. Uh, and, I, and I get that. I, I, I kind of agree with that philosophy. 
Um, but how deep do they get in the depth chart? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see a majority of the scholarship athletes, a significant majority of the uh, scholarship athletes uh, get into the game, maybe something like 75-80%. Uh, yeah. Probably more, actually, than that. Because uh, so the scholarship limit's 85, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. It's 85. Then it may even end up being more than that. Uh, I, I kind of have a, um, a sub-question, I guess, uh, for that. Is uh, Do you think in this game that we'll see Avery Johnson for the first time in a K-State uniform? Yes. I do as well. Uh, Follow-up, how early do we see him? Fourth quarter after Jake Rubley gets a quarter. I think you and I are on the same page then. <laughs> we need to stop hive-minding. Yeah. People are going to start thinking we're the same person. Yeah, I think they might. I, th- I think plenty of people probably already do. We end up repeating ourselves a lot, <laughs> uh, which is unfortunate, but that that's just what happens. I mean, that's what happens when you get two people who know the same information. I guess you're probably right, yeah. We, we do have the same information well, going into this game. When you know ball. And are we ball knowers, Ace? Yes. Excellent. Back on track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think... I, I do think that we end up seeing the top three quarterbacks, so Will, obviously. And, and if all goes well, you take Will out by the middle of the third quarter and hand it off to, to Rubley. Then it, if I had to amend it, I think that Avery would get, like, the back half of the fourth quarter. And so he'd probably get, like, one drive, one and a half drives. Uh, probably handing the ball off a lot to Tony Frias or Joe Jackson. But I do think that we do see Avery this game. Because I think that pretty much everything gets to the third line, except for maybe offensive line. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you on that. Uh, we'll hit a point with the O-line that I think we're probably good. Um, we're good with. Um, I I do expect to see a lot of players in this game. Um, probably a lot of walk-ons. Uh, I, I'm not 100% sure how many people we'll see, but... I guess even maybe a better way to phrase it is in the regular rotation, you know, how many people are are playing as part of, like, a regular rotation before uh, the blowout, you know? That's a really good question. I don't know. Yeah, which, assuming we hit blowout, uh, which we're optimistic, we're hoping, knock on wood, uh, that we can do that, but... I mean, how deep do we go at defensive line? Because there's a lot of young guys there that I think that they want to have play. But then again, like offensive line, they'll rotate, I think, at the top because uh, they have some good backups. But I think you're right. They won't go too deep, um, especially because if you have an emergency, I think you want to keep uh, some of the emergency linemen uh, maybe pretty fresh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's all the storylines. Now we can talk about the offensive and defensive MVP projections we have. We agree on the offensive MVP, and that is uh, it's Big Willie Howitzer, Bill the Butcher, Will the Thrill, whatever you want to call him, Will Howard. Yeah, I I think if Colin Klein had his way, uh, that Will Howard would break multiple single-game passing records in this first <laughs> game. Uh, well, I guess we'll wait and see on that. Uh but we know that Colin Klein really wants an explosive offense. Uh, I'm hopeful uh, that we'll get to see some fireworks, but it, it remains to be seen. And then defense, we actually have a little bit of difference here. I went with Duke, and the main reason I went with Duke is because I don't have any faith in the SEMO offensive line, and I think that they're going to really struggle with a Power 5, Big 12-level power rusher, and I think that's exactly what Duke is is just this power-rushing monster that the moment you basically let him pin his ears back, he's going to deposit a tackle into the lap of the quarterback. And I think that that's going to be a really big factor. Honorable mention could be Dez, Dez Purnell, um, just because of how much they want to run RPOs. But I would accept either answer. I'm going to go with Khalid Duke, though. I think that we did the same math. Uh, here, but got different results. I went with Kobe Savage for, again, uh, their offensive line is not going to be able to contain our pass rush, I don't think. 
and I think Kobe Savage could be the beneficiary. I think he gets an interception in this game, uh, could um, break up a few passes, and I could see him getting a lot of tackles because I do think Hess will get at least a couple of, uh, like, seven, eight yard plus. Hess runs. is too good to fully contain. Yeah, I, I think that he'll get he'll get his in this game. I think that Kobe uh, will kind of come in to clean up uh, the mess in a few cases like that. And I could also see Kobe flying around the field and uh, taking guys out in the flat. I know he had a play similar to that last year against South Dakota where he blew someone up uh, kind of on the sideline at one point. Uh, so we may see a couple plays like that. Uh, I think Kobe will be uh, um, exceptionally motivated uh, for uh, this game <laughs> and his return from injury. Yeah, I agree. So now we can talk about the score projections, and this is assuming everything goes well for the Cats, which I think it will. I'm going to project a 52 to 10 Wildcat victory. Yeah, I'm rolling with 56 to six. Simo uh, gets either a touchdown and misses a PAT or two field goals. I can't decide. I don't know if it matters in this prediction. It doesn't really matter. But do you have any any final thoughts? Uh, I am. Really, really excited for football season to start. Uh, it's going to be an agonizing last few days. It's going to be a very long wait to kick off uh, in the stadium, but it's going to be so much fun once it's back to finally get over that hump, and then I think the weekends will start uh, getting here quicker. Yeah, because it's, it's all about getting that first one out of the way. But, yeah, that pretty much wraps up this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to follow or contact the show, you can follow us at Aggieville Cats on Twitter, threads, and Instagram. And if you want to email the show, we are AggievilleAlleyCats at gmail.com. If you want to follow us on a more personal note, I am at ACEdward00. I am at Connor Balthazor, capital C, capital B. And if you want to support the show financially, please be sure to check out the official Aggieville Alley Cats merch store. That is AggievilleAlleyCats.myspreadshop.com, and you can just purchase any design that you wish, including established Alley Cats. Be like all of the other really cool Alley Cats who have purchased merch, not including us, the other ones. But <laughs> yeah, just it helps the show out a lot, so we really appreciate every purchase. But most importantly, thank you all for listening to this episode of the Aggieville Alley Cats podcast. Where come rain, shine, or anything in between, we're here to deliver to you the Kansas State sporting news that you so love. Stay safe, Valley Cats.